Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Canada EHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Calendar, Ontario was a small and quiet community in central Ontario, 280 kilometers north of Toronto. On May 27, 1934, if you asked someone outside the area about it, most probably couldn't even find it on a map. Then, on May 28, 1934, something happened that defied the odds and for the next decade, Calendar was the biggest tourist attraction in Ontario. More people visited the small town than Niagara Falls. In 1943, when Prime Minister William Lyne Mackenzie King asked a Chinese diplomat what Canada was known for in China, he was told, the RCMP, King himself, and what happened in that small town. This is the story of the Dion Quintuplets, five girls who were thrust into the spotlight the moment they were born and spent their youth being exploited by nearly every person around them. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. A famous smuggler, scoundrel, hero, Han Solo, captain of the Millennium Falcon once said, never tell me the odds. But for us to understand what happened in Calendar, I have to give you a few. Odds of getting struck by lightning are about 1.2 million to 1. Odds of winning the lottery in Canada, about 14 million to 1. The odds of having five identical quintuplets? That's even rarer. It's about 57 million to 1. Identical quintuplets surviving into adulthood? That is even more unusual. Oliva and Alizir Dion, a francophone couple living outside Calendar, beat the odds in late 1934. 
The couple had met in 1925 and already had five children by the time Melzir found out she was pregnant almost 10 years later. And while pregnant, she thought she was going to have twins. As you can imagine, she was a bit off on her approximation. Then, on May 28, 1934, as Dr. Alan Defoe and two midwives helped her deliver the babies at home, five identical baby girls entered the world two months premature. Yvonne was the first, followed by Annette, Cecile, Emily, and then Marie. Collectively known as the Dion Quintuplets, they weighed 13 pounds, 6 ounces in total. After giving birth, Elzir went into shock and Dr. Defoe fought to save her life. His main concern was the mother because at no point in recorded history had quintuplets been born and survived longer than a few hours or days. Believing the children wouldn't survive, he focused on Elzir and his efforts were successful when she recovered after about two hours. Dr. Defoe was an experienced second-generation physician who'd been practicing medicine in Colander since 1909. He could not have known it as he worked to save Elzir, but those five babies he expected to die were about to make him very famous and a very rich man. Before that could happen, they had to survive. This was 1934 after all, and the infant mortality rate per 1,000 live births was 72.7. Now to put that in perspective, the 2023 infant mortality rate is 3.943 deaths, and those were premature quintuplets, not to talk about odds, but they weren't in their favor. To give them a helping hand, the babies were put into wicker baskets and heated with blankets and massaged with oil and fed water with corn sweetener every two hours by the midwives. Miraculously, the babies survived that first day. And while Elzir and the babies fought for their lives, their uncle, Oliva's brother, unnamed in my research, went to the Colander newspaper to ask how much it would cost to print an announcement of five babies in a single birth. The editor's journalistic spidey senses tingled, and instead he wrote a story about the birth that went out on the newswire. According to the newspaper stories from the time, only 30 quintuplet births had been recorded in the previous 500 years, and all of those children died within a day. The story spread like wildfire across North America. Meanwhile, back in Calendar, the quince, as they became known, were given a mixture of cow's milk, boiled water, corn syrup, and two drops of rum on their second day on Earth. They would have no way of knowing it, but they were the most famous babies on the planet. The family was still in shock from the surprise of welcoming five new babies at once. The Dions weren't poor by any means, but this was the Great Depression, and the family had a nice home on their homestead. But with five newborns, Oliva Dion suddenly found himself with double the number of children he had before. His worry about money likely didn't last long because, as news spread, so did opportunities. From across North America, people offered assistance and advice to the family. Hospitals donated incubators and the National Mortgage Company offered to refinance the family's mortgage, which Oliva declined. Many women offered their breast milk and with five newborns, that offer was accepted. The women were paid 10 cents per ounce of breast milk and each morning a special train delivered 28 ounces of breast milk for the babies. Then, on May 30th, a Century of Progress International Exposition, also known as the Chicago World's Fair, offered to put the quince on display. The contract guaranteed their father, Oliva, $100 as an initial payment, amounting to about $2,500 today, and then $250 per week afterwards. It was a fortune for the family with 10 mouths to feed. 
The decision was too important for Oliva to make on his own, so he consulted with his parish priest, unnamed in my research. And what was that priest's advice? To take the offer and to make him their business manager. As will become too obvious in this episode, those around the Quints didn't see babies. They saw dollar signs. Under the agreement with the Chicago World's Fair, 70% of admission profits went to the promoters of the fair, while 23% would go to the Quint's father, Oliva, and 7% would go to that parish priest. Soon after it was proposed, Oliva was accused of exploiting his children, so he revoked the contract, but that initial decision would have long-lasting consequences. Meanwhile, thousands of people descended on the quiet community of Calendar and looked through the Dion's windows hoping to catch a glimpse of the babies and cause huge traffic jams. In their newfound fame, the issue over the Chicago contract would plague Oliva and to protect himself from a potential lawsuit, on July 27, 1934, he and Elzir signed a contract with the Red Cross. The contract covered all medical costs and gave custody of the babies over to the Red Cross for two years. Ontario Attorney General Arthur Robeck said, There is no law which permits us to adequately deal with these American gentlemen who are attempting exploitation in question, so that we must be satisfied with merely circumventing their scheme. The Red Cross built a special hospital for the baby soon after the contract was signed. And on September 21, 1934, the children were moved into the Defoe Hospital and Nursery, named for Dr. Defoe, the man who welcomed them into the world. Yet it seemed like everyone around the Quince was looking for ways to make money. Fred Davis, a photographer with the Toronto Star, quickly signed a contract preventing anyone, including the Dion parents, from taking pictures of the babies. He was the only one allowed to do so. And in exchange, $10,000 was put into a trust fund for the children. Now please make note of that trust fund, because it's going to come up many times in this episode. As the months went by, the trust fund grew by thousands of dollars a week as promotional and merchandise sales came in. In February 1935, Oliva and Elzir made the decision to go to Chicago and appear on stage as parents of the world-famous babies. And even though they went by themselves, and knowing that the Red Cross contract was only two years long, Ontario Premier Mitchell Hepburn saw an opportunity to extend the guardianship of the Quints to avoid them being exploited, but more likely to have control of the money they were making. In his defense, Oliva said, There is talk I want to take them on tour this summer. That is a false rumor. In March 1934, Premier Hepburn pushed through the legislation called the Dion Quintuplets Act. This officially made the children wards of the state until the age of 18 and removed them from the custody of their parents, allegedly to ensure protection from promoters and those who would exploit them. Now we will pause briefly here, because I want you to prepare yourself for the hypocrisy whiplash you're about to experience. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In an effort to protect the Quints from exploitation, 
The provincial government took custody of the quince, and as soon as they did, they built an entire tourism industry around them and exploited them. They appointed a board of directors to oversee all business matters for the children. The board consisted of Dr. Defoe, Judge Joseph Vallon, Minister of Welfare David Kroll, and the Quint's father, Oliva Dion. But Oliva's seat at the table was merely symbolic. He had little voting power and would never be able to outvote the other three in their monthly meetings. Saturday Night Magazine wrote of this turn of events, quote, Mrs. Dion, a few months ago, gives birth to some babies, and just because there are five and not two or three, a lot of important people, including the Premier and Attorney General, step in and push the parents into the background. On Canada Day 1936, what became known as Quintland opened. Visitors had to go past a seven-foot-tall barbed wire fence surrounding Quintland, which prevented anyone from seeing the girls for free. Inside, there was a nine-room nursery with three nurses and three police, a housekeeper and two maids. Visitors could observe the girls playing on the outdoor playground from an observational deck through one-way mirrors. And despite not seeing the tourists, the girls could absolutely hear them. This would be where the five girls would live nearly every day for the next seven years. The girls wrote in their book, We Were Five. We dealt at the center of a circus, a carnival set in the middle of nowhere. Good thing the government stepped in to prevent the exploitation of the quince, right? Once again, we take you to see the five stars. And nowadays, selling Dion souvenirs is a thriving trade. But while they wait outside, we go in to find the two-and-a-half-year-old little girls enjoying the final dip of the season in their own private bathing pool. That's Yvonne, with the ribbon in her hair. She's generous. But then they're all generous. In the play yard, Yvonne takes the center of the stage. And already she's got that film star smile. Mary tests out an unbreakable doll. And boy, is she tough. I said she was tough. She's going to be a cowgirl when she grows up. A ride on the go-kart is very nice. But getting off is another story. Ah, uh ah. -uh. Now don't say that word. Don't say it. Photographing the babies is a slow job. Look out for that fence behind. Okay, but in the end, Patience gets the picture. Mary wants the table all to herself for a little physical exercise. Their parents lived across the road from Quintland, but the girls rarely saw them except for publicity photos. And each day the Quints woke up, were given orange juice and cod liver oil, and then their hair was curled. Then, with the sound of a gong, they ate their breakfast. At 9am they were inspected by Dr. Defoe and the rest of the day was spent being tutored privately or playing in the playground. At 6pm they ate dinner. Now remember the girls were identical so to help the tourists identify each girl, they were dressed in specific colours and designs. Annette was dressed in red with a maple leaf, Cecile was dressed in green with a turkey, Emily was dressed in white with a tulip, Marie was dressed in blue with a teddy bear, and Yvonne was dressed in pink with a bluebird. Even though Oliva didn't have custody, he still tried to profit from his children. He ran a souvenir shop next to Quitland where he sold memorabilia and gave autographs for 25 cents each. He even sold stones from his property as people believed anything from the property held some sort of fertility power. Speaking of that, it was not unusual for women to reach out to touch Elzir to increase their own chances of fertility. And all of this was going on at the same time as the great Stork Derby. 
You'll remember from my episode about the Derby that families in Toronto attempted to have the most babies in a 10-year period between 1926 and 1936 in the hopes of inheriting a fortune. It's quite possible a few families went out to Calendar to boost their fertility chances. The Dions weren't the only celebrities in town, though. Dr. Defoe suddenly found himself in the spotlight as well due to his association with the Quince. He soon spent little time in his medical practice and instead dedicated himself to Quintland. He quickly became wealthy as a guardian of the Quince while having multiple commercial endorsements and speaking fees. He wrote books and had a radio show as well. Meanwhile, the sisters were endorsing and promoting everything from milk to candy to toothpaste. The Quince were a booming business and everyone wanted a piece of the pie. Two corn syrup companies, the St. Lawrence Starch Company and the Canada Starch Company of Montreal, even sued each other in 1935. They each wanted to be the official brand used by the Quince. The sisters wrote in 1965, Money was a monster. So many around us were unable to resist the temptation. Before long, the Quince were the biggest tourist attraction in Ontario and arguably Canada. Each day, 3,000 people came to Quintland to see the sisters in their enclosure. And a couple of months before she disappeared over the Pacific Ocean, aviator Amelia Earhart visited the Quince and stated they were lovely girls. Other notable visitors included movie stars such as Clark Gable, Jimmy Stewart, Betty Davis, and Mae West. Soon the girls became stars of the silver screen themselves because in 1936 the Quince starred in their first movie, The Country Doctor. The movie featured a character named Dr. John Luke, based off of Dr. Defoe who cares for his patients for little pay in the back country of Quebec. The character becomes a national hero when five babies are born, helping him save the local hospital. The Quints were about two years old so they simply appeared in the film and all of their scenes were filmed at Quintland and mostly consisted of them playing. The movie pulled in $1.4 million at the box office, amounting to about $30 million today. That same year, The Reunion was released. This film from 1936 was a sequel to The Country Doctor and centered again on Dr. John Luke, who is now famous for the birth of the five babies. He retires after delivering 3,000 babies in the community. So yes, the Quince had their own cinematic universe. And for that film, the Quince were filmed for 26 days, one hour per day, and were paid $83,000. The Quince weren't paid directly. The money went into the trust, or at least whatever was left over as the adults kept taking their share. And speaking of the trust fund, it had grown to about $250,000 by this point. At the time, there was little in the way of legal protection preventing guardians from dipping into the fund to pay for things. The government had custody of the quince, but rather than covering costs of taking care of the children, they simply used the trust fund to pay for food, travel expenses of photographers and filmmakers, and for dinners with dignitaries. The Quints were famous and on May 31, 1937, they appeared on the cover of Time magazine. A year later, their third and final movie came out, Five of a Kind. It was released on October 14, 1938 and featured the fictional Dr. John Luke, a runaway heiress and two rival journalists hoping for a scoop on the quintuplets. The movie very much presented an idealized version of the sisters, who in reality had no idea their lives were any different from other families. As they grew, they dealt with the intense feelings of isolation from growing up in a compound. And 30 years later, they wrote, We were a club, society, a civilization of our own.
Meanwhile, on May 22, 1939, the Quints took a special air-conditioned train to Toronto to meet King George VI and Queen Elizabeth while they toured Canada. That same year, their parents, Oliva and Elzir, pushed to regain custody of their daughters. For the next four years, they fought the provincial government before finally succeeding in 1943, the same year Dr. Defoe died. And while the Quints lived at Quintland, they generated a fortune in tourism revenue equaling $500 million in 2023 funds for the province of Ontario. A year before the family was finally reunited, Oliva and Elzir built a 20-room mansion on their property. Now I can hear you asking, how did they pay for such a large home? Well, if you thought the money came from selling autographs at 25 cents apiece, you would be wrong. If you guess that the parents dipped into the Quince Trust Fund worth $1 million, you're right. The Quints moved into what was called the Big House in 1943. The expensive family home, paid for by the Quints, had a boarding school on the property for the sisters and 10 other girls of the same age from across Canada were brought in to be their classmates. Four nuns and a monsignor staffed the school. Their father treated the daughters, not as a family, but as a prize he had won from the government. The sisters wrote decades later, We were transferred to the Big House like a conquered army. As for the home the Quints moved into, they called it the saddest home they ever knew. In the big house, the division between the Quints, who only spoke French, and their siblings, who only spoke English, became apparent. The girls were constantly told how much trouble they caused with their birth while the family lived lavishly off the money they made. The sisters wrote later, We were drenched with a sense of having sinned from the hour of our birth. Before I continue with the story, a trigger warning is this next section deals with physical and sexual abuse. The Quints stated their mother was physically abusive to them while their father constantly wanted the attention they received and took them to perform at functions to pad the family's bank account. The sisters stated, Mom and Dad behaved towards each other as though they had been partners in some unspoken crime in bringing us into the world. Later in life, the Quints stated that their father also sexually abused them as teenagers. According to one story, when Yvonne was feeling sick, her father put liniment, a skin lotion, on her chest in a manner that was described as, quote, not fatherly. He then insisted on doing the same to Emily, even though she was not sick. The girls came to dread car rides alone with their father, and Annette wore turtlenecks to prevent her father from putting his hand in her shirt. When Annette told a clergyman about the abuse, he allegedly said, It is bad, in effect, but it's not up for you to judge your father. The only advice he gave her was to wear a thick coat on drives. Meanwhile, when the Quints were 16, they were put on display once again for money. In October 1950, they went to New York where huge crowds welcomed them. The New York Times wrote, The Dion Quintuplets came to New York last night and received the wildest press ovation in the history of the great metropolis. While in New York, they appeared at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel at dinner where guests had to pay $100 a plate. A year later, in 1951, they met Princess Elizabeth and Prince Philip while they toured Canada. At North Bay, Ontario, the Empire's famous twosome meets our country's famous fivesome, the Dion Quintuplets. They drove from their home in Calendar to see this princess that to this moment had been but a newsreel picture. (laughs) 
On January 28, 1952, the Quints appeared in a parade in St. Paul, Minnesota, then in the evening went to a party held by a calendar company that printed Dion quintuplet calendars in Hudson, Wisconsin, and they were a few months from turning 18 years old. And as soon as they became adults, the Quints left home and did their best to have little contact with their parents from then on. All five girls enrolled at the Nicolette Convent in 1952, each taking a different course. Yvonne left the school in 1953 to study art while Marie prepared to become a nun. Today, at a convent in Quebec, Marie Dion, now Sister Marie, enters into a new life as a nun. She offers a last goodbye and kiss to her sisters and to her mother. Beginning the first long separation from her sisters since that memorable day, 19 Dion passes into a secluded world of meditation and prayer. On August 6, 1954, Emily suffered a seizure while alone in a room at the convent. She rolled onto her stomach and wasn't able to lift her head off the pillow. She died from suffocation. She was only 20 years old. News quickly spread around the world and 500 people came out for the funeral. Photographers had the girls stand next to their dead sister in the coffin. And for the Quince, the grief was overwhelming. Although they knew of her epilepsy, the family refused treatment. Instead, it was hidden and the problem became deadly. In their book, We Were Five, written in 1965, the sisters wrote, Epilepsy does not kill people. It did not kill them. She died as a consequence of being alone with no one at her side to take care of her. We never left her like that at home. In 1955, when the girls turned 21, they finally got access to their trust fund. At one point, it was worth millions, but it quickly dwindled as their alleged caretakers dipped into it. Now, I don't have a dollar figure of how much was left, but once it was split between the four remaining sisters, it lasted for only a few years. Between 1956 and 1957, three of the girls, Marie, Annette, and Cecile, got married. All three marriages ended in divorce. Marie had two daughters, one of whom she named for her sister, Emily. Marie opened a flower shop in 1956, which she named for Emily after her sister and daughter, but the shop eventually failed, and Marie fell on hard times. Annette had three sons and became a librarian. Cecile had five children, including one set of twins, and as a single mother became a nurse, which helped her provide for her children with everything they needed. Yvonne remained unwed, but also became a nurse and then a librarian in adult life. When asked why she never married, she stated she never saw much love when she was young and that influenced her decision. In 1965, at 31 years old, their book, We Were Five, was released. It detailed their isolated upbringing and the impact it had on them. It did not mention the sexual abuse they suffered at the hands of their father, but the girls received little sympathy in the press for their book. The Sioux Star wrote, It really is unimportant if there is any validity in their account of their early life or not. The fact is, no one can feel sympathy for anyone who would wash their own family's dirty linen in public and make a profit off of it. Now, the sisters weren't looking for new fame from their book. In fact, they avoided the spotlight in adulthood and for the most part, just wanted to be left alone. Interviews with newspapers were few and far between, and sadly, there were more dark days ahead. In February 1970, the sisters were unable to reach Marie, and they worried because she had been dealing with depression as her kids had recently been put into foster care. Marie's doctor went to her home and found her in her bed, having died several days earlier. 
The cause of death was never released, but it was speculated to be a blood clot in the brain. The five sisters were now three. In 1978, the Dion Quintuplets, a National Film Board documentary, was released by Donald Britton. It consisted of archival newsreels. He didn't interview the surviving sisters because he felt they wouldn't want to dredge up the past again, and he wanted to respect their privacy. A year later, in 1979, their father died, followed by their mother in 1986. The big house the family lived in eventually became a retirement home. By the 1990s, the three sisters were living together in an apartment on only $746 combined income per month. Around the same time, the sisters wrote the Dion Quintuplets, Family Secrets. The book broke the story of the physical and sexual abuse the Quints suffered while living with their parents. Now, the sexual abuse became the focus in news stories, but the response to the book was more positive than their 1965 book, We Were Five. Then, on June 23, 2001, Yvonne died of cancer. Upon her sister's death, Annette said to the press, She was very special. They were very frail. She was strong inside. It will be hard to be without her. As of the writing of this episode in 2023, the five are now only two. Now, if you're wondering what happened to that trust fund, well, the surviving sisters finally got what they were owed in one small way. In the mid-1990s, the three remaining sisters asked the Canadian government to compensate them for their exploitation to the tune of $10 million. The government gave no response. The sisters kept at it and began to speak to the media, which helped raise their case's profile. When they released their book, which detailed their traumatic upbringing, public opinion pressured the government to do something. Then Bertrand, Cecile's son, discovered that documents from 1934 to 1937 related to the Quints had been destroyed. Those documents would have helped the sisters' case. In response, Ontario Premier Mike Harris offered the three surviving sisters $2,000 per month as payment. The sisters refused. They weren't trying to be greedy, but the amount offered was pennies compared to what was owed to them from the trust fund that was mismanaged by the adults around them, including the provincial government. The government then offered $2 million and then $3 million, which the sisters turned down. Finally, an offer of $4 million came in with an agreement to analyze the trust accounts. The sisters accepted this, and Premier Harris visited them personally to apologize on behalf of the Ontario government. Today, the remaining sisters, Cecile and Annette, live a quiet life away from the spotlight. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at the Dion Quintuplets. Next week, we're looking at the hilarious House of Frightenstein. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Life, Library and Archives Canada, Wikipedia, Washington Post, North Bay Nugget, Vancouver Sun, Windsor Star, Canada's History, Red Deer Advocate, Saskatoon Star Phoenix, Ottawa Journal, The Sun Times, and The Great Depression. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production design by Rosalind Kufor. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. 
Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.